Hello and welcome to CultureCast with Dan Del Monte. I'm here um, giving a podcast today on a brilliant philosopher by the name of Elizabeth Anscombe. Now, Anscombe wrote a piece called uh, Modern Moral Philosophy in the mid-20th century. It is from 1958. Originally read to the Voltaire Society in London. Anscombe is a Catholic philosopher, heavily influenced by the German philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. In this piece on modern moral philosophy, which he sees as decadent and in need of reform, she critiques various schools of thought about how to determine what is right and what is wrong. So the discipline of ethics, how ought we to live, how to untangle some of these difficult ethical, ethical questions, right? She sees modern moral philosophy as con- conveying this very flawed and sloppy set of ideas that is eroding the moral fabric of her society and the larger Western world. One of the prominent schools of thought in England, ever since John Stuart Mill, is the philosophy of utilitarianism. This is an ethical philosophy that grounds an objective moral law. So there's a moral principle that is not our opinion. It's not just a subjective uh, feeling. It's something that is binding, independent of who you may be or your circumstances. And this moral law is that we should seek the greatest happiness for the greatest number. So think in terms of consequences of your actions. Are your actions, you know, working? Are they producing happiness for the greatest number? So in other words, just abandon ideology. Abandon any kind of preconceived notions you have going in. Find out what works. What actually produces the most happiness for the greatest number? Okay, so there are some some problems with this um, ethical creed. Yeah. First of all, um, you have to define happiness. All right, so if you want to produce happiness, well, it's kind of an ambiguous and vague word. What do people mean by happiness? All right, what is it consistent? Is it some kind of feeling? Is it some kind of pleasure? Is it some kind of um, lifestyle? Okay. Um, Do you want to achieve the most happiness or the best kind of happiness? So is it better to achieve just a lot of happiness or are there certain kinds of happiness you want to achieve the best? So Mill does distinguish between the pleasures of the mind, uh, pleasures that a, a human being can experience as opposed to an animal pleasure. And he famously says that he'd rather be Socrates unsatisfied than a pig satisfied. In other words, he'd rather be a human being who can suffer more than an animal. We notice things that animals don't. Okay, we worry about our finitude. We worry about our own death, 
our mortality. Animals don't care about that. Um, we have complex human rela- relationships that animals don't have. Okay? Um, but we have a certain kind of happiness available to us that animals also lack. A- animals can't read a brilliant book or have a philosophical conversation. Um, so what kind of happiness should we produce? The most or the best? Okay, so this is an ambiguity and a difficulty in this utilitarian creed, which sounds very simple at first and very intuitive, but actually is quite fraught with difficulty. Okay. Do we create happiness for humans in particular or all sentient creatures, including animals, or even future creatures? So do you produce happiness for people who are living now or do you worry about people in the future? So we talk about things like government debt, spending too much, you know, that might produce happiness for the people living now, but for future generations, it's going to, it's going to create inflation and uh, excessive taxation to make up for the debt. All right. Let's talk about things, things like climate change. People say, well, uh, we have these models, you know, claiming to prove that there's going to be these disasters in the future, but for now, we don't have to worry about them. All right, but they accuse us of not caring about kids. All right, so maybe you need to, uh, 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 to address this issue of who's included in this greatest number. Is it future people? Is it sentient creatures? Because, you know, animals can suffer too. We don't want them to suffer either. Okay. Uh, Anscombe is known for her conservative views on sexual ethics. She adhered to the... Um, Church teaching on contraception, okay, humana vitae. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on the church to be open to contraception, but it was forbidden in uh, humana vitae. Uh, the t- teaching of the church was reaffirmed, and Anscombe was a believer in this teaching. Um, she spoke out against contraception. Okay. And also she was opposed to atomic weapons. Okay, so uh, when Truman used the atomic bomb to end World War II, this was very disturbing for Anscombe and led to a, um, a, uh, a very fruitful philosophical period where she started to push back against the easy acceptance of what Truman had done. He, he was going to receive an award from her university, and she uh, protested and gave rise to a very brilliant and amazing book called Intention, where she discusses this idea of intention. Um, It seems to play a key role in moral judgment. So we judge someone differently if they intended to do something than when they did not intend to do something. But it's kind of a confused concept because... As she unpacks in the book, um, you know, we don't know, for instance, to what extent someone really intends uh, consequences that may um, ensue from their act. Okay, so um, Truman may have had the immediate intention of signing a piece of paper, okay? But the consequences of his action 
or more grave. All right, uh, killing innocent life. All right, so you look at the immediate objective and then the ultimate result. And you need to understand what an intention is and its role in moral judgment to make a, cl a clear judgment about what Truman, uh, to what extent he's guilty, okay? So, going back to this um, piece on modern moral philosophy, she has three theses, okay? Number one, we must do away with moral philosophy until we get philosophical psychology, okay? So, we're trying to answer questions about what what is right and what is wrong. But before we can do that, we need to have an understanding of key psychological concepts. Okay, for instance, like, like intention. What is an intention? How is it different from a prediction? Okay, so when I say, I predict that I will become a doctor, okay? How is it different from saying, I intend to become a doctor? Okay, so we need a philosophical psychology to understand what something like virtue is. What is happiness? Okay, so these are, these are concepts that we use in our moral discussions. Okay, so this made me happy. Why is this right? It made me happy. Why are you not guilty? I did not intend. Okay, these are very crucial concepts in our moral discourse. And so the prior act activity that has to be done is a philosophical psychology. Okay. Um, the second thesis is that we need to get rid of notions of moral law and moral obligations because they are derivatives of an earlier framework. Okay, so this idea of a moral law or an obligation. Okay, there's some kind of um, this, this, this is an um, idea in ethics, of course, that there is a, uh, an imperative, there's a law that you must follow. But Anscombe was noticing that the world is becoming more secular. People are leaving religion. Okay. Um, now, maybe she could have said, come back to religion. But instead she's saying, we need, we need a new ethics that recognizes that people are secular, and if you say that you have a law, that there is a law that you must follow, um, but there's a sec this is a secular individual, they will not, they will not recognize the lawgiver. Right? So a law to be binding requires a lawgiver. It requires an authority. And we live in a world that is becoming more secular, particularly in the Western world, okay? And this idea that there's a moral law you must follow becomes hollow if there's no authority to back it up and to enforce it. Okay. She kind of um, is very um, dismissive of these English writers. She mentions this individual named Sidgwick. It's basically a big lump. 
even though they may have these seemingly intense debates amongst themselves about different parameters for um, determining what is right and what is wrong, they're basically the same. All right, there's basically no, no real difference. They're making the same errors. Okay? So she notes that the modern sense of moral does not fit into Aristotelian ethics. Okay, so what's she talking about? The sense of moral. Okay, so you have a moral duty to do something. Um, it's your moral obligation to not fight in an unjust war. Because there's some kind of duty to what you must adhere, regardless of whether you want to or not. And this duty is imposed upon you by some kind of authority. Um, a, a divine authority. Okay. Now, in Aristotle, you don't get this idea of a law. Aristotle is more concerned with um, developing your character so you can really achieve your end as a human being. Okay, develop a character so that you become happy. And happiness is a particular kind of activity associated with your humanity. Okay, so ethics for Aristotle is about cultivating virtue so you can become truly happy. All right, so uh, humanity has, has a certain end. And we need to find out that end in order to achieve our most uh, highest state of flourishing. There's no idea of a law. Like this, this, this idea that there's a law that you have to follow because it's just built into the nature of the universe. Okay, so... Um, now, she mentions this guy named Butler... And Butler's ethics, she pithily says, is an ethics that exalts conscience. So follow your conscience. So you have these competing drives, um, these, these inclinations or desires. And some of them are good, some of them are bad. All right, so um, now Butler's saying, let your conscience be your guide. Okay. Um, but the problem is that um, man's conscience can tell us to do the vilest things. This is a kind of obvious retort. Um, you know, we can do a lot of evil things in the name of our conscience. Okay, so people say, um, I'm doing this because it's right. But the problem is they have an uninformed conscience. They don't have a proper understanding of right from wrong. And so conscience can't be our guide. We have to have a, an informed conscience. We can't just claim uh, virtue in the name of our private conscience. Okay. Um, now, she also notes that one cannot pass from is to ought. Okay. And ethical claims do not conform to standards of truth. Okay? 
So we can't pass from is to ought, meaning we can't begin with descriptive claims. Okay, so this television is square and flat. Um, this um, weather is hot. Okay, um, this person is uh, attractive. Okay, you can't pass from these descriptive facts to claims about what we ought to do. Okay, this, this, it's, a, it's a logical misstep. Okay, you can't just take a fact and then conclude from it that you ought to do something. Okay, so like, um, you know, it's 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 a it's um it's a it's an assumption. You can't just say, well, this is the case, therefore I ought to do that. It doesn't follow. Okay, and also these ethical claims are not. Um, they don't conform to standards of truth. All right, so if I say, I must do that, what concretely might prove that claim? So if you're an empiricist and you base your knowledge on experience, okay, you want to um, um, ground your ideas in experience because you want to be intellectually, intellectually responsible. Um, now, if you're an empiricist, you'll take an ethical claim, I ought to, to, to do this, and it really has um, no concrete, uh, demonstrable fact associated with it. Okay, so it's not like you can prove it. So this is a, an empiricist look. Um, you can't go from is to ought Okay, so maybe you might think like, um, the weather is hot, therefore I ought to um, wear shorts. Okay, you might say, well, that logically follows, right? But what I think she's saying is that you can't get the moral law from that is claim. You might be able to, to say like, I want to wear shorts, but you can't arrive at uh, the moral law that you ought to wear shorts from the fact that the weather is hot. Okay, it's, it just, it just, it's, it involves a, uh, way too many assumptions, okay? So, um, now some might say that we could legislate for ourselves, okay? We can, um, you know, make a law for ourselves, okay? Um, this is kind of like the conscience, the, uh, the conscience theory. She says that legislating for oneself is like having a majority vote with just one person, okay? So it's like having a vote, but there's only one voter. So of course, you know who's going to win. All right, so legislating for oneself is uh, 
a fabrication. It's not a good basis for a moral theory. Okay. Um, so you have these different theories um, based upon laws, based upon pleasure. Again, we look at the utilitarians okay, who are basing their ethics on what produces the best results um, as opposed to a um, law. Okay, so let's just abandon this idea of a law and find out what works. Okay, But she says that um, I can describe an action in different ways to get it to fall under the principle of utility. Okay, so you could take an action and just describe it in different ways. So um, you can describe it like with respect to a certain group of people. Okay, so maybe it's something that's pleasurable for one group, but not another. Okay, and, and you, you can describe something so that it has different ramifications depending upon how you, how you describe it. So and she's basically saying that this standard can be manipulated so that every, everything appears right. Okay? Um, as long as you describe your actions in a certain way. All right? Now, um, uh, so again, we take um, the hardcore empiricist who is very uh, epistemologically responsible. Uh, they want to ground all their ideas in facts, or they accept certain logical relationships, certain um, logical truths, like, um, you know, all bodies are divisible. Okay, that, that the idea is necessarily true by definition, because a body, um, to be a body has to be, has to have parts. Okay, all bodies are divisible. Um, now, the empiricists will say, will say, yes, we have those um, basic logical truths, but also we have um, matters of fact. So these are the two sources of knowledge. These fundamental, def by definition, true uh, logical truths, and then these matters of fact. Okay? Now, if, you, if these are your two... Um, sources of truth and knowledge. Uh, this is called Hume's Fork from David Hume, the great um, 18th century uh, British philosopher, the great British empiricist. The idea that I owe you something is not based on matters of fact or in terms of strictly logical principles. Okay, so I owe you something. That's this legalistic notion of an obligation. Okay, so that you have the matter of fact that you, you did borrow money, um, but this idea that I owe you something, where does that come from? Okay. Um, what, what kind of grounding does it have in terms of a um, empirical data or in terms of some um, relations of ideas? So, for instance, she says, the fact that something is unjust 
Okay, so let's say that, like, hey, this is unjust. Someone could just dismiss that. Why does someone have to care? Okay. Um, that won't really affect me unless I want to be just. Okay, so you can't just say uh, that's not just. Um, you know, pounding your fist and saying that's not just. Because to get a duty out of that uh, requires, I mean, basically, minimally, at least, the person cares about being just. So this is the idea that um, you could be a, a skeptic about, um, about morality. You know, why should you care? What, what, what's, what ultimately is the meaning of this idea of justice? Why can't you just dismiss it? This is, this is where this notion of a lawgiver comes in. Um, if you're secular and there's no lawgiver, why should a law matter to you? All right. Um, she also notes that um, this idea of theft... Okay, so we say theft is ethically wrong. But this idea can be differently defined based upon different property institutions. Okay, so she's basically just breaking down our, our assumptions and creating a quandary. Okay, um, so we seem to have this common sense view. Certain things are right, certain things are wrong. And certainly there's like some consensus issues about behavior and there's conventions. But there's also a lot of um, disarray, some serious disarray in our ethical um, uh, judgments. Okay, so um, what is theft? Well, people define it differently. So for, 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 for one group, it could be um, theft, for another, it could be just sharing. Okay, so people have different definitions of property. So we're going through all these different options for grounding our moral beliefs. You have all these problems. So number one, this idea that you ought to do something requires a mysterious leap from just facts, okay? So, um, the person is sick, the person is poor. I ought to help, okay? That doesn't seem to follow. How do you get that, how do you move from the fact to the moral obligation, all right? Um, and what happens if you don't have a lawgiver? What if, happens if you don't have a, 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 a God who can um, issue and back up a moral law? Okay, so it's, it's like um, currency, money without a government that validates it is just paper. Okay, so um, in the same way, a, a, a command is not... Um, significant if there's no um, being to, to validate it. All right. 
So, um, we got this law conception of ethics um, from Christianity. Okay, um, uh, God gives the Ten Commandments. Um, why should you do this? Because it was commanded by God. It has a certain um, unconditional status. All right, so it doesn't matter if you do, if you want to do it or not. You must do it. Okay. Um, so, why or why not should someone get an abortion? All right. Well, is it um, certain facts? You know, the, the facts themselves don't dictate any moral uh, duty. Okay, so um, you might say, like, what about, like, pain and pleasure? So you don't do what's painful. Uh, do what is pleasant. Okay, but that might just, that might be just a, um, a psychological um, tendency. But you couldn't go, go, go from there to a law, all right, that you ought to do what is pleasurable based upon the, the mere feeling of pleasure, the mere fact that something gives you pleasure means you ought to do it, okay? Um, that doesn't follow because, you know, pleasure itself can't, be the sole arbiter of what's moral, right? We, we take pleasure in a lot of immoral things, right? So we get this idea of a law from Christianity. The problem is that what happens when people start rejecting Christianity, people say that we're basically a pagan culture where we have gotten away from um, the worship of God and, and now we have maybe a kind of a vague spirituality that's not part of any kind of um, Christian tradition. All right. How do you talk about morality and moral philosophy with someone like that? All right, so I'll be picking this up um, later. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And um, keep, keep, keep keeping up with CultureCast. Thank you.